Okay, good morning again. Jim uh, Dorn said we might as well get started, and so I don't see why we shouldn't. I'm Bill Poole, and uh, I'm the moderator. I'm, Jim also gave me the uh, task of presenting Alan Meltzer's paper. Alan is unable to be here today, and it's an honor to be able to present his paper. We're gonna proceed uh, in the order in which people are listed on the program. Uh, so, uh, after I play at being Alan Meltzer as best I can, we will have uh, Kevin Warsh. Uh, Kevin, I got to know through his, uh, our joint uh, service on the FOMC and other committees in the Federal Reserve. Um, I observed Kevin when he first arrived, and I must say um, that uh, he uh, increasingly, I thought, became a very, very impressive member of the FOMC and uh, I departed before he did. Uh, Jerry O'Driscoll, I've known for quite a long time, and uh, so he's, uh, he, he has a variety of activities. One of them that I always enjoy uh, looking for is his, uh, from time to time, op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. And David Malpas uh, is, is uh, a person that I've known not as long. He made, uh, a serious run for the United States Senate a few years ago. I'm sorry he was unsuccessful, um, but uh, maybe it's to our benefit because if he were in the Senate right now, he might be busy with something else. Good luck. Okay, uh, so I'm gonna start with, um, with Alan's paper, and I'm gonna do my best to stick with uh, Jim Dorn's marching instructions that we have presentations of uh, 12 minutes. So Alan's paper is titled, uh, What's Wrong with the Fed? What Would Restore Independence? Now, Al what I've done is to uh, pick out uh, sentences from Alan's paper for the most part, and so almost everything that I read here uh, is actually in the paper. Alan starts with a quote from Alan Sproul, who was the president of the New York Fed, and I think this came from a uh, 1948 uh, speech, I suppose. Uh, quote, I don't suppose that anyone would still argue that the control of the banking system should be independent of the government of the country. The control which such a system exercises over the volume and the value of money is a right of government and is exercised on behalf of government with powers delegated by the government. But there's a distinction between independence from government and independence from political influence in a narrower sense. The powers of the central banking system should not be the power, uh, the pawn of any group or faction or party, or even of any particular administration, subject to political pressures and its own passing fiscal necessities. So that's from Alan Sproul. Uh, 1948. A few would disagree with Sproul's statement. The greater problem is finding institutional arrangements to achieve it and retain it if it is achieved. We all learned, and many repeat, that the Federal Reserve is independent within government. That was certainly true of the Federal Reserve in 1913, but already by 1917, it helped to finance the war by lending to, uh, by lending to finance bank purchases of war debt at concessional rates. After the war, the Treasury Secretary insisted on holding low rates of interest to support refunding of government debt. And I would add, and so on, with few important exceptions, it has been ever since. The Federal Reserve now has unrestricted power to do what it chooses. It vastly expanded its balance sheet. It engages in credit allocation. It holds down market rates on all treasury securities, in part to recapitalize the money center banks. And here I would add, as an aside, th these sentences that Alan uh, wrote um, sound as though the Federal Reserve has uh, great independence. It does whatever it wants. <laughs> but I think Alan's argument is that the Fed preemptively acts to avoid 
any risk of congressional action. So he proceeds, the Fed sacrifices independence by responding to pressures from Congress and the administration. One example is that Arthur Burns was unwilling to pay the political cost of reducing inflation. Independence increased during uh, the Volcker and Greenspan chairmanships, but decreased substantially in 2008 and after. Having shown members of Congress its ability to expand money and credit massively, it will be difficult to avoid repeating such expansions in the future. Discretionary authority to regulate financial markets and banks has always been divided in the United States. Federal Reserve authority has grown, and with it, rule by regulators has supplanted reliance on common standards for the risks and the rule of law. The Board of Governors has often equated the interests of New York's largest banks with the public interest. This, too, subverts independence. Can independence be restored? My own study of the Federal Reserve history found that in its almost 100 years, the Federal Reserve rarely has achieved sustained periods of relatively stable growth and low inflation. The two periods identified were both years in which the Fed more or less followed a specific rule. In 1923 to 28, the Fed followed a weak type of gold standard. From about 1998, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1985 to 2003, the Fed closely followed John Taylor's rule. Overall, the Fed does not have a distinguished record. <clears throat> Regulatory policy does not improve the record. The Fed watched while banks reduced equity capital after the government approved deposit insurance. Before the most recent crisis, the Fed permitted large banks to circumvent capital regulation that would have restricted portfolios of risky mortgages. And it set, sent examiners into all large banks to observe portfolio decisions, but it failed to prevent uh, any uh, purchases by those banks. Now, independence is central to the Federal Reserve's ability to choose policy actions that achieve price stability. Sacrificing much of its independence, as the Fed often has, permits others to pressure the Fed to achieve other objectives, uh, usually short-term objectives. There's one reason that the Fed responds to short-term events, often at its cost, uh, at the cost of failing to achieve longer-run objectives. When I read the Federal Reserve minutes or transcripts from the mid-1920s through 1986, I was struck by the almost complete absence, almost complete absence of policy discussion that asked if we take this action today, what do we expect to happen one or two years from now? In interpreting changes in economic data, a frequent problem is distinguishing temporary and permanent changes in levels, but also in growth rates. Alan Greenspan's recognition of the 1990s increased productivity growth is now legendary. The other main example is Paul Volcker's pursuit of lower inflation from 1979 to 1982. Volcker understood that he had to achieve a permanent change and that doing so would require sustained commitment to put the economy permanently on a different path. An example of the Fed's short-term focus is resort to the actions called QE2 in the summer of 2010. Within a few months, it was clear that the summer slowdown was a transitory change that reversed before the Fed's bond purchases even started. At the time, banks' balance sheets had hundreds of billions of excess reserves. What could QE2 do to encourage expansion that banks could not do by using the excess reserves uh, that they already had to expand money and credit. QE2 was a mistake. The main error was to interpret a short-lived decline in economic growth as a persistent change. Anyone familiar with data on real GDP or other measures of, uh, of economic activity knows very well that quarterly real GDP growth rates are highly variable subject to revision, and difficult to forecast accurately. It is impossible to infer whether a change is persistent from data on a month 
or a quarter. It is clear that the market acts as if the Fed responds to transitory changes. Speculation is commonplace that the Fed will propose more purchases at some forthcoming meeting. Now, at the end of 2012, is there any evidence showing that further additions to reserves will generate a higher rate of economic expansion? Treasury interest rates are at historic low values. More than one and a half trillion, trillion of excess reserves sit idle on bank balance sheets. Why would a few hundred billion more have a persistent response? What evidence suggests that current problems are monetary rather than real? We are not in a liquidity trap. Current economic problems are not monetary in nature. One can appreciate the political and market pressures that Fed policymakers, especially the chairman, face. That is the reason for independence, but it requires determination to resist the pressures. The Fed recognized the need to resist political pressures when it agreed on an inflation target in January 2012. Will it follow through? We can see the same pressure at work in Europe, where the ECB has violated or circumvented many of the restrictions in its charter. Chairman Volcker made some significant changes in economic policy. He sustained an anti-inflation policy as unemployment rose. Initially, markets were skeptical that he would maintain his stance after interest rates and unemployment rose, and a deep recession began. Markets expected policy to reverse course. Instead, with unemployment at 8% in the spring of 1981, the Federal Reserve raised the federal funds rate. That had never happened before. Within 15 months, inflation fell below 5% for the first time in years. The unemployment rate declined subsequently. The first lesson is that sustained policy actions are necessary to achieve long-term objectives of stable growth and low inflation. A second lesson from the Volcker era is that recovery occurred despite real long-term interest rates of 7% from 1982 to 1985. Discussion in the FOMC minutes at the time expressed uncertainty about whether the response to money growth would dominate the relatively high real interest rates. It did. Paul Volcker spoke frequently to Congress and to the public to teach the anti-Phillips curve message. His message was that low inflation was the best way to achieve stable growth and low inflation. This message requires policy actions to focus on the medium term. By the late 1980s, many members of the Congressional Banking Committees had accepted this idea. Unfortunately, the board staff and much of the current FOMC membership continues trying to do the opposite, to reduce unemployment by expanding and inflating. Congress gave the Federal Reserve a dual mandate in the 1970s. The Fed was charged with keeping both unemployment and inflation rates low, a task it achieved from 1985 to about 2003, but at no other extended period after World War II. In recent years, Federal Reserve staff and some principals analyzed events using an elegant model developed in Woodward, uh, Woodford, uh, 2003 is the reference, and subsequent papers. The model has an explicit micro foundation. It combines Phillips-type aggregate supply equation with rational expectations based on aggregate demand uh, to solve for inflation and output. The central bank sets only the interest rate. All other nominal interest rates and asset prices are assumed to follow from the single rate and expected inflation. Despite its elegance, this model should not be taken as a serious model of monetary policy. It lacks highly relevant parts of the monetary transmission mechanism. There is no central bank balance sheet, no money, no credit variables, and no prices of any real assets. In Woodford's model, market participants talk about how asset price bubbles must be treated as, whole, as wholly a result of expectational changes. Are such changes always rational? I think we had some discussion this morning suggested they are not always rational. <clears throat> Can they be financed without a shift in portfolios from money to the particular real asset that speculators choose? 
Didn't the Federal Reserve policy of keeping the interest rate from rising in 2003 and part of 2004 permit lenders to finance mortgage purchases on favorable terms? Wasn't the same type of credit and monetary expansion at work in the so-called dot-com speculation of the late 1990s? And I would uh, add, uh, this is my addition, um, and, and by the way, how can the Woodford model with no money, provide any insight into quantitative easing. A much earlier and longer tradition treats central banks as suppliers of money and credit and treats monetary changes as affecting asset prices. I would point to the work of Friedman, Tobin, Brunner, Meltzer. Their models did not restrict transmission of monetary impulses or interest rate changes solely to expectations. Relative prices of assets and output have a central role. The Woodford model's concentration on the single short-term rate controlled by policy actions reinforces political pressures to respond to current events and improve the longer-run consequences of today's actions. It is not implied by the model, but the model wraps all future responses into rational expectations. The large cost of acquiring information about future asset and labor market prices is neglected. How am I doing on time here? Am I violating yeah, my- Yeah, you're, you're kind of hit running it. Running a little bit over? Yeah. Um, so let me, um, <laughs> let me just give the, the gist of this part, the, the final part of the paper, which I thought I had written out carefully, um, that um, Alan it makes a plea for having uh, a rule-based policies that are, are not subject to uh, discretion, uh, ad hoc decisions, uh, sort of meeting by meeting. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, Bill, th thank you very much. Um, oh. So, Bill, th thank you very much. Uh, you, you said those words almost like you meant them. So, uh, <laughs> so that was a really good job of imitating Alan. Um, sounded coincidentally what I heard for our several years of overlap at the Federal Reserve. Um, listen, to Cato, thank you very much to uh, Jim Dorn, John Allison, the gang, for having me here. Uh, you'll notice I waited till I left government before finding my way to Cato so I could give you the unplugged version under the subject of uh, limits of monetary policy. I'd like to make just a few points. Um, first, Bill talked at the outset about a statement that we all sort of say as secondhand now. The Federal Reserve is independent, and we all believe that is core to the conduct of monetary policy. But he reminded us it's independent within government. And I actually think that's quite relevant to the question of the limits of monetary policy. So first, Cato deserves tremendous credit for a simple title, but one that can too often, I think, be forgotten in town, and that is there are limits. We should acknowledge there are limits. And even if a model, a model that's been uh, prepared in the academy, been treated to a lot of intellectual rigor, and practiced at the central bank, somehow suggests the more you push down long-term interest rates, the more that can keep helping GDP, the more that can minimize the output gap, doesn't mean the model's right. There are diminishing returns in virtually everything in financial markets and the real economy, and some models account for that and some don't. We talk about the independence of monetary policy within government, and I'd bring you to a broader point. So if you ask what are the limits of monetary policy, I'd say every central banker Tom Honig, Bill, myself, uh, our colleagues who are still there, they have to recognize that monetary policy can be incredibly powerful at certain moments and really lacking in efficacy in others. So my first point really is one of situational awareness. Central banks need to understand the environment in which they're making actions. And just as they're in government, they need to evaluate what's happening in the rest of government in order to judge whether their actions are crowding in good policy or crowding it out. So under this point, I'd say that in evaluating the limits of monetary policy, you have to assess what regime do you find yourself in. And if you go back to the depths of the financial crisis, if we conclude that that was a panic, 
That was a panic that was perhaps not in some ways unlike the panic of 1907, which gave birth to this version of a central bank. Then you might well conclude that in the depths of the panic, a central bank not only should be, but in some sense was built to be very aggressive. Monetary policy was built to be quite useful and powerful in getting markets to open and getting bid-ask spreads to clear. And so you might come out of that crisis with commentators saying the central bank did remarkable work, getting markets to open, getting markets to clear. You can come out of that crisis with either the right interpretation or, I think, in my view, a misleading one. The misleading interpretation is when you get into trouble, don't worry. There's always a central bank that can pull rabbits out of a hat. But again, I'd say that's unique to financial panics. So what are the limits of monetary policy in that sort of regime? They exist, but monetary policy is powerful. Let's go to a different regime, a regime where an economy has gotten out of recession for several years, a regime where the economy is growing at 1.5 or 2%, a regime where inflation, at least as, uh, as measured by, by uh, the Bureau of Labor and Bureau of Commerce, has it broadly consistent with price stability. If that's the regime you find yourself in, and you look more broadly at the environment, you look at the environment on the real side of the economy as I've described, you look at the environment internationally, because we are a single economy in a globally integrated market and a globally integrated uh, system, you'd evaluate that too. You'd also look at financial markets. Where do financial markets find themselves in this other regime? with a relatively low growth environment, and you'd be hard pressed to call that a panic. Now politicians might, <laughs> might feel like a panic to them. Unemployment's still too high, job creation is still too low, but that's not the kind of panic where central banks can be nearly as powerful. And we've gotta be careful about describing what might well be a crisis for the country and a crisis for elected officials and at the central bank, take that on as a crisis for the central bank. One other point on this situational awareness theme, this theme of trying to evaluate the regime you're in before seeing the efficacy of monetary policy, is while the central bank's independent, its policies work along the lines of and in a dynamic relationship with the rest of Washington. So again, imagine two different regimes. Imagine a regime where Congress and an administration were seriously taking good progress in defeasing outstanding liabilities. Imagine one where budget deficits were coming down, long-term entitlement problems which are mutually agreed by everyone in Washington were being dealt with. And so there was some fiscal contraction. There was a quest to and achievement of uh, some long-term uh, economic sustainability. Central banks should evaluate that regime too. And in that case, if a central bank said, well, we're at the zero lower bound and we're, feel as though there's a bit more we could do to turn an economy and make it still stronger, I think some of the criticisms that, that you hear in rooms like this and that people like Bill and I might give, that might be a little less loud. Because there would be no critique that there was a monetization of debt There'd be no critique that the central bank is crowding out other policy, because other policymakers were stepping up to do their jobs. But imagine that regime where liabilities are growing every day, where Washington, at least the rest of Washington, sees that, you know what, it's uh, just another deadline that's gonna come and go, and I bet we can count on that central bank to bail us out yet again. That situational awareness, that understanding of the regime in which you find yourself, strikes me as core to evaluating the potency and the risks of central bank action. Second point, by acknowledging limits of monetary policy, central banks, it strikes me, need to do everything they can to burnish the most important power they have, and that's their institutional credibility. The most valuable asset on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet today is nowhere on the official audited financials signed off on by D&T and uh, my successor. It's our institutional credibility. 
consider that a goodwill item. And I'd say that's far more powerful than the $2.8 trillion in assets. And so persuading markets and the rest of Washington that what you're going to do every day is burnish that institutional credibility, that the credibility that the central bank didn't happen by statute, it happened by the predecessors, predecessors to folks like Tom and Bill and me. And if we leave the institution with more credibility, to hew to our objectives, to recognize the central bank as a powerful central bank, but using words that are not commonly heard in Washington, a narrow one, then we'd leave the institution with more credibility. So the people that followed us would have more power to act in crises as necessary and to act in other benign times as well. Third point, the limits of monetary policy suggest that central banks in, at the zero lower bound need to come up with more tools. QE and asset purchases are one, and it's very popular both in the US and around the world to talk about communication based on a lot of great work from Nobel Prize winners about the, po the potency of communication by central banks. But I wouldn't want to take that too far. Communications matter. Making sure that markets and business people understand the reaction function of a central banker, absolutely critical. But what do these market participants and business people look to beyond communication? They look to what you do, not just what you say. And those actions strike me as more powerful. And given the frequency of actions by the world's central banks over the last several years, I wouldn't want to dismiss the uh, new focus on communications, new focus on a communication of how the central bank acts. But given the frequency and power of actions, I'd make the wager that while monetary policy may well have its limits, so does communications policy. Fourth and final point, uh, Bill, before I'll sit down and listen to my colleagues. Um, what about the limits of, policy, of monetary policy with respect to each of its objectives? I'll make a point which is probably uh, no less popular. One is price stability objective. I still think that the central bank is the dominant role in establishing, burnishing, holding true to its price stability objective. Doesn't mean there aren't other factors, but Milton Friedman had this one right too. Central banks can, over the medium term, drive to a price stability objective. If you look at the other side of the Federal Reserve's mandate, the mandate of unemployment, where we should be maximizing sustainable uh, labor markets as the best level we see practicable, central bank has a role to play. You won't hear me walking back from an important responsibility, but those labor markets are influenced in certain regimes, like regimes we find ourselves, by things that are far outside the remit of the Federal Reserve, far outside the remit of a powerful but narrow central bank. And if you were to judge the labor markets in an environment in this regime, you would look to trade policy, which has been going in the wrong direction, strikes me over the course of the last half dozen years. And that is having a materially negative effect on the labor markets and is well outside the remit of the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve would be remiss and I think in error to try to compensate for the failings of a broken trade policy. Second, what other policy besides monetary policy impacts this piece of the uh, Federal Reserve's mandate besides monetary policy and trade policy? Regulatory policy. The panel before us spoke at great length about that. Federal Reserve has certain regulatory responsibilities, more after Dodd-Frank than, than they had before. The risk, of course, to a central bank that's in these other responsibilities is that they run the risk of over-promising and under-delivering. And if they under-deliver in the regulatory responsibilities, does that negatively impact their institutional credibility on monetary policy? You bet that's a risk. Monetary policy, in my judgment, is going in the wrong direction. Credit is not flowing through the institutions that have to compete with too big to fail banks. And that is also doing harm to the labor markets. Monetary policy can do preciously little to compensate for that failing. And like trade policy, 
puts itself at grave risk if it tries. And what about fiscal policy? Fiscal policy is, I think, by any objective standard, going in the wrong direction. Fiscal policy for too many years across administrations has been too myopic, too focused on the short term. And you wonder whether the central bank can compensate for those failings. And you wonder whether the central bank is running risks by trying to do just that. I think, again, if you summarize the limits of monetary policy are real, central bankers, including this central bank, certainly must acknowledge those limits. And their policy objective should be to evaluate the situation, evaluate those other parts of policymaking that are inter overlapping with their own, and at the end of the day, take actions that try to crowd in those policies rather than take actions that try to crowd them out. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm very uh, happy to be here. I thank Jim Dorn. Um, I wrote this paper with Tom Cargill, who is in the audience, but if he's not sitting in the first two rows, I can't see him with these bright lights. It's amazing. Uh, our paper is on central bank independence, myth or reality. And just to give you a preview, we're going to say it's largely myth. Um, the modern idea of central bank independence focuses on de jure independence. And uh, it, it, de jure independence is regarded as at least necessary, if not sufficient, for price stability. This view has made its way into textbooks. It's widely accepted, but we are skeptical. And uh, we will give you the reasons in summary form here. Uh, they're available in, oh, now I see Tom. They're available in much more detail in our paper, which I believe has been handed out. Uh, we have five reasons uh, why we're skeptical. First, important historical uh, counterexamples contradict the view. The Federal Reserve, long considered to be one of the most independent central banks in this de jure sense, played a key role in the, uh, just, to, just to leave the post-depression era, in the uh, great inflation from 1965 to 1985. Meanwhile, the Bank of Japan, which is in fact one of the world's most dependent central banks in the de jure sense, that is not independent, uh, up to 1998 anyway, generated an impressive record of price stability during that period, if I'm sorry, from 1950 on. Get my watch up here. Um, so, uh, so we have these two big counterexamples. And by the way, as the Bank of Japan has become more legally independent, it's become more de facto dependent on the government. Second, detailed analysis of the policy record of the Federal Reserve suggests far more political sensitivity than the modern view acknowledges. Meltzer's history of the Fed demonstrates the Fed's sensitivity to political institutions despite its supposed independent status. And the diary of Arthur Burns, which Meltzer did not cite, reinforces this view. Likewise, detailed analysis of Bank of Japan policy since 1998 uh, indicates that as it gained more, as I already said, as it gains more de jure independence, it, it loses de facto independence. Third, we think the timing consistency literature suggests that the case for optimal price stability outcomes from de jure independent banks with multiple goals is questionable. Friedman also stressed that independent central banks are also likely to be the source of monetary instability. There are fourth, there were methodological issues that which Tom Cargill especially has taken up in his independent papers. And finally, let's be commonsensical. Central banks are established by governments. Governments respond to political interest. It's hard to make this case that the central bank can, in ordinary circumstance, insulate this from it, itself from this. Well, uh, I think what I want to do, we have a lot of stuff on the origin of central banks. And I think the people who know the historical literature of the origin of central banks know their origins was in uh, the problem of fiscal problems that governments had, and they were created for that purpose. The Bank of England is illustrative of that. It started out as a fiscal instrumentality uh, to benefit the king and the government. And it became, a, and there was no, obviously, no concept of monetary policy in the 17th century. Uh, it became a central bank because of monopolies that were given to it. And other historical examples 
reinforce that view. In many ways, the Fed uh, is different. Uh, it's a different story. It's a story that has to do with what was viewed at the time as an unstable banking system. I think Jeff Myron's charts kind of call that it, or call the significance of that into question. In any case, it would have been very easy to fix the issues, the problems, with the national banking system, the post-Civil War banking system, no central bank, a private issuance of currency by national banks. The problems with that system were understood at the time. The fixes weren't complicated. The creation of the Fed was not a necessary condition to solve that financial instability we saw, which, as we saw, did not keep the US from growing very rapidly, historically. But um, I, at least I view, and I, I, I kind of let Tom kind of let me get this idea into the paper, the Fed was really part of a progressive agenda to gain control, government influence over the uh, financial system. It had no monetary policy role when it was created because we were on the gold standard. Uh, that, that role came along only after, well, with, as uh, Alan Melcher said, World War I. Now, I, what I want to do is jump ahead, because this is really the core of the, of the debate. The, the, the accord of 1951 between the Treasury and the Fed, where the Fed no longer had to engage in price support of the Treasury bonds, that is, fixing interest rates, is viewed as the watershed event in this independence literature. And the performance of the Fed in the 1950s is viewed as confirming the importance of the Fed's gaining independence in this sense. Uh, and, but let us realize that it wasn't independent. It didn't gain independence because what happened right after the accord was signed? The Fed, the Fed chairman, Federal Reserve Chairman McCabe, was forced to resign several days later by Truman, who simply sent him a letter and said, your services are no longer satisfactory, despite the fact that he had a legal term that lasted until 1956. Um, so it, and secondly, if this is the defining moment in which the Fed gained its independence, then because it no longer had to support the price of Treasury securities, then I, I, I submit to you that I almost could stop right here, because since we now have a policy of supporting the price of Treasury securities, it must, by logic, mean that Bernanke ended the Fed's independence. I could stop here, but let me go on a little bit. I'll, <laughs> I'll use up some more of my time. Um, OK. Now, we also have a discussion in here of whether it is possible for the Fed to be de jure independent. And uh, our argument is, under the Constitution, it actually can't be. And the legal doctrine is that no delegated power can be further delegated. So there's a whole problem with this literature in which the Fed is pictured as de jure independent. Rather, most of my talk is going to be, the remaining part of my talk, is going to be on the question of de facto independence. And to kind of give you the bottom line is it, it waxes and wanes as kind of uh, we've already heard from uh, Alan Melcher's paper. We encourage economists to adhere to the modern view of independence, to study the history of the Federal Reserve, particularly under both McChesney Martin and Arthur Burns. The price stability of the 1950s did appear consistent with the independent central bank hypothesis. However, Martin had little problem shifting to a more supportive role of the government as the government drifted into more active Keynesian uh, uh, policies under Kennedy and Johnson, and then, of course, uh, the, the war, the Vietnam War. Burns, when he came on the board with strong academic credentials, continued the Martin tradition of viewing Federal Reserve independence as independence woof, within government. And throughout the 1970s, conducted policies during uh, the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations with the same political sensitivity. So we very much support the view of Meltzer on this point. Now, Volcker is widely credited and deservedly so, was restoring the Fed's reputation and, and winning the fight against inflation. And we agree. But remember, the reason he was able to do this is he had the support of Reagan. And Reagan threw his support behind him. Schultz and others convinced the president if they didn't end inflation, the Reagan administrations would end in tatters. It wouldn't have a program. It couldn't have a program. So 
Yeah, Volcker gained independence from congressional criticism, popular criticism, by becoming dependent on the support of the executive branch. We also agree in our paper that Greenspan more or less followed in the, in the Volcker tradition of, because he was adhering to a rule that he evolved called the Taylor Rule, uh, he was able to operate independently uh, to a great degree, but then he broke the rule. <laughs> and what's Greenspan's on, own judgment on what was going on and what the Fed's role, his role was in the government? When he testified in April 2010 to the Financial Crisis Commission, he was reported as the following. He argued that if the Federal Reserve had tried to slow the housing market amid a broad consensus about incurring home ownership, home ownership the Congress would have clamped down on us. So much for independence. Um, now, what is the source of the problem? Uh, could the Fed be more independent de facto? It has de facto from time to time. In some sense, Volcker acted independently. But it only can act independently when it follows a rule. Again, a point that's already come out here. The emphasis on the short run is the systemic failure of the Federal Reserve, long noted by historians. Um, the failure to forecast the Great Recession uh, seems to me to undermine any claim the Federal Reserve is able to successfully engage in discretionary macroeconomic policies. So it should, as a practice, follow a rule. In any case, if it wants this political independence, a rule is the only thing that can give it to it. Okay, um, let me then quickly, um, all right, let's go. Okay, so what's, how do we end up in this paper? As follows, and I'll be able to do this very quickly. At no time has the Federal Reserve, or we think any central bank, been entirely free of political pressure. Sometimes it seeks the protection of one branch of government to insulate itself from another, this is in the context of the US system, uh, Volcker and Reagan. It thus makes itself more dependent in one sense to become more independent in another sense. In any case, over any long period of time, such as the post-accord period, there's just no way you can blanket categorize the Fed or I think any other central bank as having been either independent or dependent for the entire period. As I've said already, it waxes and wanes. Um, the problem of the empirical literature is that it often attributes good performances to central banks that were not independent in fact and vice versa. The years in which the Federal Reserve might be said to have operated independently are comparatively few in number and do not encompass the whole post-accord era. The idea that the Federal Reserve Bank was independent in any consistent a coherent sense over this period is myth rather than reality, and we suggest that's probably true for most central banks. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Um, thank you, um, Bill Poole, uh, Jim Dorn, Cato. Uh, it's very nice to uh, see so many friends here. Um, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. My paper that's in your packet and the slides I'm going to show you describe current monetary policy, examine its economic impact, and discuss possible exits. I make three points. One, that current Federal Reserve policy is contractionary by hurting savers, damaging markets, and rechanneling capital away from job-creating parts of the economy. Second, the Fed's September policy change was a major increase in the aggressiveness of monetary policy and, in my view, the contractionary impact of that policy. And third, the best exit would be for the government to adopt growth-oriented tax uh, spending and regulatory policies in parallel with a growth-oriented Fed resolve to provide sound money and downsize its role in capital allocation. The combination would encourage investment and hiring in the U.S. private sector. 
Uh, so our, my first uh, slide is the Fed funds rate. Note the volatility. Uh, that's because uh, currency instability has become our policy. Uh, this is very costly. The ups and downs, you have to have an entire derivatives complex devoted to trying to reduce the risk from this uh, volatility. Uh, in, in, on the right-hand side, the Fed has said it's pegged uh, the, or, or they expect the rate to be uh, near zero through mid-2015, but then they've gone farther in many of their recent statements uh, in effect saying that unless there's a, that, that they intend to keep the rate very low uh, for a considerable time after recovery. That's very aggressive in terms of the monetary policy implications. Um, the, on, on this slide, it shows you the assets, the top line uh, of the Fed. So they've grown fast. Note on the left-hand side what I call uh, QE1A. Remember, right after the Lehman bankruptcy, the Fed was very active, a huge jump in its assets. I think those uh, were important to stabilizing the situation. But after that, uh, so if it's QE1B, which was the, the huge purchases starting in March of 2009 and continuing up through present, uh, have been harmful and contractionary. Um, uh, in September, remember, what the Fed did was aggressive. The Fed approved QE3 purchases, decided to buy MBS. Uh, it made QE3 open-ended uh, based on the unemployment rate. It committed the Fed to new types of asset purchases in the event the labor environment doesn't improve substantially. So if you try to project the assets out, you get a very wide cone. If you say, where is that top line going to be, say, three years from now? It could be $4 trillion. It could be $2 trillion. And that uncertainty is very contractionary for the economy. Um, the impact is felt in the private sector uh, by the, as the Fed buys assets, the effective maturity felt by the private sector is the bottom line, the pink line. The top line shows you what the Treasury is doing in terms of its issuance. It's lengthening the maturity of its issuance. But the Fed is buying duration faster than the Fed, than Treasury is selling it. They buy long and they borrow short. Uh, and so you end up with a massive distortion in the, uh, in, in, in the Treasury markets. So if you, I'm going to show you several slides where we can try to measure the distortions. And so the, the, the area between those two lines is one of the measurements of that area. Here's how the Fed does it. The top line shows you the maturity uh, that of its ownership of over five years. So this is the longer term. And the, the bottom two lines, the, the bottom line is their holdings of zero mature, of short of treasury bills, and you can see they've gone to zero. So all, all of our monetary policy learning has been based on the Fed injecting liquidity and removing liquidity through buying and selling of T-bills. They don't have any left. What they've been doing is adding massively to... Uh, um, to their longer-term holdings. So this is the maturity of the Fed's holdings of treasuries, um, uh, of treasuries alone. So this doesn't count the lengthening duration of their MBS portfolio. Um, and so thus, the US monetary policy has been reduced to an absurdity. Uh, the Fed is first, first was buying already very expensive long-term bonds under QE using overnight funding. Then it was buying even pricier and longer-term bonds under Operation Twist and paying for them by selling all of its under three-year uh, three assets. Um, Okay, so uh, the distortions go into various markets. This is showing you the interbank market collapsing and the Fed funds market collapsing. So we're harming markets that are important to the way capital is allocated. The next slide shows you, the, I've got two lines. The dark blue line is the five-year treasury and the red line is the uh, uh, change in nominal GDP growth rate. So over the years, nominal GDP and the five-year treasury went up and down together. That was a properly functioning market. And now you see the massive distortion from, excuse me, I, uh, from over here on the right-hand side uh, as the Fed is buying back. So this is a market that's not 
functioning, and that's very harmful to our growth outlook. Um, so uh, the net result of this, I skipped a page. The net result of this is that uh, the Fed policy is that growth in government credit has occurred. That's the bottom line. Look how fast it's growing, but not growth in private sector credit. So this is contractionary to have your credit going into the government. And here's the pieces of it. This shows you the government credit now exceeds household credit at the top. Uh, and what we're seeing is uh, um, most of the growth in credit going to the government and to the non-financial corporate businesses, meaning big companies are getting a lot of credit. Um, and, and the government is. The Fed's policies have been raising the price of agency MBS, of other government bonds, of corporate bonds, and of gold. None of these are job creators. Capital flows to these higher priced assets rather than allowing a market-based allocation of capital to job-creating businesses. Um, by underpricing credit for certain borrowers while applying regulatory limits on traditional lenders, credit ends up being rationed. The regulators overseeing the banking industry are, in effect, imposing a quota weighted against small and new businesses through their choice of capitalization and leverage requirements for different types of lending. Uh, it's also been called financial repression. This shows you the distortion in income markets, uh, massive, uh, massive shift in income. And so what we've had is 46% growth in transfers, 22% uh, growth in income to corporations. This is all since 2006. And only 8% growth in uh, income to other sectors. That's because the Fed is channeling money that way. And it's uh, that way. Okay, so this is the effect on GDP growth. You see the rapidly declining GDP, uh, GDP growth out of this. In the September FOMC statement, the Fed strengthened its forward guidance in the hope that it will encourage consumer spending and GDP. But the more pronounced effect will be in discouraging business investment. Per the new Fed, the new Fed policy, the weaker the labor market, the more government bonds the Fed plans to buy. This threatens the private sector with an even more distorted capital market uh, allocation process. That creates a feedback loop that discourages uh, productive investment. So the tips market, the tips yield on the right-hand side for a five-year is now negative 1.5%, which is an amazingly negative prognosis from the market or massive uh, market distortion. Um, turning to money supply, then contrary to the popular view, there hasn't been any money printing, no big jump in private sector credit or in M2 money supply. You see these two blips in the M2. This is level of M2. One was the Lehman crisis. And the second one was the Europe crisis, which caused uh, money market funds to, uh, to move out of Europe and into bank deposits. So it wasn't inflationary in the way it was operating. This is M0, monetary base. And what you see uh, is that it jumped massively. Um, it jumped massively um, and uh, I think needs to be rethought in terms of measurement. It now is interest-bearing excess reserves are included in the monetary base. So to me, it doesn't have much meaning as an indicator. This gives us the money multiplier, the traditional way of thinking about the transition mechanism, transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So if the Fed injects liquidity, uh, then the banks multiply it times 10 uh, on the left-hand side of the graph. But that whole process really has collapsed. Uh, uh, the QE hasn't thus, so it's collapsed because we're now moved into a credit rationing environment. So thus, QE hasn't caused much of any increase in M2 in bank lending or in private sector credit. So the, the impact has been a zero-sum shift in the mix of credit. Any increase in corporate borrowing due to the lower rates came at the expense of less credit for other parts of the economy. With near zero interest rates, there's no price-based constraint, so credit ends up being rationed to various sectors of the economy by the government based on its assessment of the riskiness of various loans. This inevitably channels credit to the government and big corporations rather than through a market-based capital allocation process. Um, 
So I want to show you two slides on, on gold since we're here at the, uh, at the Cato Institute. Uh, I think gold provides a good report card or measurement, uh, um, and so we should spend a minute on it. It will help measure how we're doing on monetary policy. So at the left-hand side, you see this is the 10-year average and the nominal price of gold together. On the left-hand side is the Carter years, big run-up in gold. And what I'm showing you, what uh, I don't know if I have a pointer. Yeah, maybe I do. No. Um, so the, the, the inflection points of gold have been very specific. You have Volcker, gold goes down. You have the Plaza Accord, gold goes up. Louvre Accord, gold goes down. The Greenspan's December 1996 speech about irrational exuberance was right where gold begins going below the 10-year average there. It, was, it happened that night. Uh, and then 9-11 uh, provided a bottom on gold as it became clear the Fed was going to be looser. And then we've had QE ever since. So if you try to uh, project a cone, it depends very much on what the Fed's policy is going to be. Uh, and I don't want to overemphasize this point, but on the right-hand side, that peak in gold that occurred right there, which was October 4th, was the day uh, that Romney did well in the debate. So I think gold, uh, and, and the reason was clear, because Romney would uh, have a, a, a different monetary policy in some way than, uh, uh, than what we have been seeing now. Okay, so I have... Uh, want to, uh, in my paper, I go through uh, uh, quite a bit of the Jackson Hole speech. It's very interesting of what uh, Bernanke uh, spoke about there. I'm going to skip that part and go to the exit strategy. In the final sector segment of my paper, um, rather than, in summary, rather than QE providing stimulus, it is compounding the capital misallocation. The best exit, then, would be for the government to adopt growth-oriented tax spending and regulatory policies in parallel with the Fed doing the same. The Fed needs to provide, uh, to commit to provide a strong and stable dollar as a way out of this uh, contractionary mess that we're in, with clear communication from the Fed about its commitment to growth, sound money, and maximum employment. The Fed's balance sheet holdings, which are huge right now, and 0% interest rate would not be as dangerous or, or, or as central to policy as they are right now. We wouldn't have to worry about them so much if the Fed were clear in where we're going. Um, and in the final two paragraphs of my paper, which I may not have time for, I suggest that we think about ways to separate the Fed's balance sheet and isolate it, that we have a, a giant sieve, a structured investment vehicle. It's a heavily leveraged hedge fund in combination with the monetary policy mechanism of the Fed. And I think there are ways that we could cleave those two apart, at least conceptually, so that people weren't nearly as worried about the monetary policy. Because in a way, we've got what looks like a sovereign wealth fund inside the Fed making a big bet on duration. That raises a whole host of dangers, as the Chinese and Japanese and uh, other sovereign wealth funds have shown. So I want to read the final because I get into Fed independence. In returning to a less distortive monetary policy, we should create a credit policy that reduces financial system risk, allows a more market-based allocation of credit, and preserves the Fed's monetary policy independence in the context of sound money. Thank you very much. Okay, there's uh, microphones circulating. I, I think you should address questions to the three people who are here and uh, not to Alan Meltzer. Uh, I won't try to speak for Alan. Um, so who has a question or observation? Yeah, oh, back there. It's hard to see with these lights in the eye. Uh, it's Richard, okay. Yeah, um, the question for you all, if the Fed is not going to continue to buy U.S. government bonds, what's going to happen to the bond price? <laughs> Who's going to buy them? How long can this go on? Well, that's a big question. And I suppose we could uh, 
David, uh, I, I, I'm ready. I, 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 I'm ready. I work. I work on markets every day, and I'm comfortable with that, Richard. If the Fed were doing that, it would be in the context of a growth-oriented monetary policy, and so the 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 bond market would begin to adjust to a natural rate. The yields would be higher, but it would be in the context of more growth for the country. That that sounds right to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Interest rates go up when there's more economic activity. It's been true for as long as I've looked at the data and longer. Okay, um, another question, who has an, okay, way in the back. We're getting a bunch of backbenchers now. Um, Adam Smith always said that the sole purpose of money is to facilitate uh, consumable goods. Um, all of you have talked about essentially a floating dollar, and does there come a point where Smith is right and the economics profession has been wildly wrong in its presumption that it can tinker with the economy? Why not just have a stable dollar and get out of the way? Who wants to address that one? Jerry? Well, I mean, I think there's, that that's sort of the tenor of the, of the discussion on these panels, which is we should have more stability. And what, what a stable dollar means and how you get it, then you'd get a debate. Smith was writing, of course, in the context of a gold standard, which was the anchor for price level. Right. And now the world's very different with a fiat currency. Uh, I would just emphasize that, that big difference. And unless you believe that there's a good chance that we could be viable to go back to a gold standard, then we, we're, we can't recreate that. Right, but Bill, may I add to that? I think if we had a confidence as, as, as a private sector that uh, 50 years from now, the dollar would still have quite a bit of value. It doesn't have to have exactly the value we have right now, but it would have substantial value, not the record that we've had over the last 50 years, where it lost most all of its value. So if we had that confidence, people would invest more. So it's very important that right now no one in the government is saying we expect the dollar to be to hold its value to retain value over the next 50 years we don't have that as part of our policy mix i, I do note as, as alan melcher did that the federal reserve is now on record the fomc is a committee with an inflation objective and i think that's a step forward whether in fact it will succeed is an, another thing to be seen over the next 50 years for example uh, another, here's a question. Uh, thank you. I'm John Golub. I was interested in your chart showing the sort of rough correlation between the five-year Treasury and uh, economic growth. I guess my first reaction in seeing that chart is that uh, when the economy is strong, investment demand is strong, that drives up interest rates. So the suggesting the direction of causation is really from the real economy to interest rates rather than vice versa. Can you say something uh, in addition to convince me it goes the other way? Um, theoreticians will, so I, I won't be able to convince you. I think the two go together. So it's a cause and effect that goes both ways. Growth causes you to, uh, uh, be, to have to pay more for money and vice versa, as the rates change, it has an effect on growth. But I'm not an expert in explaining that. Do you want to add an observation? No, I think he's right. <laughs> let, let me, well, let me, let me offer an observation. Uh, th there's a connection, close connection, between financial markets, rate of return on financial markets, and the real rate of return on capital. When the economy is doing well, there's a high rate, you know, relatively high rate of return on physical capital. And of course, ultimately, portfolios have uh, substitutions between real capital, real assets, and financial assets. So when the economy is doing well, the real rate of return on capital is strong, and that is encouraging more physical investment, and that's what produces the connection between the financial markets and the uh, return on real capital. So I think there's this good reason in economic theory to expect interest rates to be higher, real interest rates now, higher when the economy is strong and, and vice versa. Another, oh, over here, sorry. I'm Gordon Smith, I'm a local home builder. Uh, 
I've known a member of the Federal Reserve for some period of time, gone to school with him. I've had chances to speak to Bernanke and Greenspan, very intelligent people. But why can seven people sitting around a table make the best decision for interest rates? And they make a decision that penalizes those who save and rewards those who borrow. It, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Why don't we let the free market choose and we all go out and decide whether we want to pay more for federal uh, debt or less and uh, get rid of the Federal Reserve and have free enterprise uh, rule the day? So, so, so I'll jump into that nice soft pitch you put down the middle. Um, so let me connect that in the question that, that Richard raised uh, about the Fed being in the business of setting long-term interest rates on a somewhat permanent and persistent basis. So the Treasury markets, it strikes me, plays a role not just as a funding cost for the U.S. government, but that risk-free rate, which is now to use an inappropriate word, being manipulated, being forced, being impacted, because the central bank isn't in the world of QE in which we now find ourselves. The central bank is a price maker, not a price taker. Go back to QE1, I would say we were participating in those markets so that markets would clear. But the fundamental role of long-term interest rates is actually even more consequential than to fund our deficits and debt. That is the risk-free rate upon which the value of every asset everywhere in the world is predicated. And if markets don't know what that risk-free rate is really, really worth, where buyers and sellers meet, then I think it's not just a risk for the housing markets, it's a risk for the value of every asset everywhere in the world. Because if you don't know that risk rate with conviction, then you scarcely could know what term premium or risk premium or liquidity premium you should be putting on the value of a stock, a bond, a house, or anything else. And so to the extent the Fed found it fit to get into this long-term uh, interest rate business, which David rightly shows is a material change in regimes and policy, uh, the persistent use of this, it strikes me, is having impacts on markets that are far broader than interest rates, but include houses and virtually everything else. Okay, I think we should stay on track for lunch. Where's Jim Dorn? Uh, Jim, right, are we uh, adjourned for lunch now? To the second floor. I'm sorry, second floor. Right, okay, very good. Good to the past.